Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigalski. And today, we have the one and only David Premer. He's the founder of Cerebral Selling. Nick, why should people listen? Well, Armand, you've got me thinking about, you just asked me a question and you didn't give me a reason why. David talks about giving reasons for asking questions in this episode. He talks about order in which you ask your discovery questions and how that impacts the answers that you get. This was a really great episode on questions and how you can ask better ones. Three, two, one, questions. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. Your Zoom Info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how Zoom Info helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by Zoom Info's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. David, welcome to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. Right on. Thanks for having me, Nick. So the first one, as I talk about, as I say, 
pick an enemy. So one of the biggest challenges we have in sales is getting the other person, getting our customers to understand what it is we do. And we, we always work up these pitches and features and benefits. And I say, forget all that. Lead with your customer's enemy, the problem they're looking to solve. So if you said, hey, look, we work with people who love feedback, but hate performance reviews, right? Like the enemy is the performance review. You might say, look, we work with sales teams who love to buy, who know customers love to buy things, but they hate talking to salespeople. So lead with the enemy. It's a much more compelling way to get your message across. Beautiful. What's number two, David? The second tip is what I call a simple reasoning phrase. So when it comes to sales discovery, the key is getting our customers to open up and share their information with us. But the problem is that a lot of the questions that we ask are contentious. We ask about what's the customer's budget or what's their timing or who's going to sign it or what's the approval process look like. And all these things, when we ask these questions, like think about when you get asked this question, the customer's thinking, why is this person asking this question? And what are they going to do with that information once I give it to them? So the simple tip is share why you're asking by appending your question with the simple reasoning phrase, the reason I ask is because. So when you ask for budget, timing, who's the signer, the reason I ask is because helps the customer understand why you're asking and it helps them frame up the answer so you get the information you're looking for. Great. What's number three? And the reason I ask is we always do three tips in the beginning. <laughs> That's good. All right. I was going to stop at two, but I'll give you one more. I, I refer to this as avoiding I phrasing. And so what do we mean by this? So many sellers, you know, younger or newer sellers have a hard time connecting with their ideal customers with conviction and credibility because you've never done their job. And so oftentimes when we start describing what it is that we do, we say, well, what I've found, what I've seen, what I feel, what I, you know, what I think, and I say, like, no one cares what you think, right? You have, very, you have very little credibility if you're younger or newer to your role or industry or company. So I say, switch your I-phrasing. Don't fall into that I-phrasing trap. Switch it to we-phrasing. So when you talk about, well, what we found at our company, or we've been in business for 10 years, and what we've realized in that time, or what our customers have found is that, or there was an article in Harvard Business that talked about A, B, and C. And the idea is by switching from the I phrasing to the we phrasing, you're shifting the burden of credibility from you, who let's say doesn't have a lot, to entities to which that have a lot more credibility, right? So you're able to communicate your value with a lot more passion and conviction, even if it's your first day on the job. Bingo. The reality is, is even if you're not an expert in HR tech or legal tech, you have the blessing of being able to talk to 200 people per month or whatever it might be and see how they do it. My question, David, is a lot of people talk about telling stories and they always say, you got to talk in stories, but very few people actually break down the ingredients that make a good sales story. Could you walk us through how you think about telling stories? Yeah, well, you know what? One of the easiest you know, metaphors I use, and I'm, this is one of my guilty pleasures, is I think about infomercial products. I love infomercial products. I talk about infomercial products a ton in my book, and I have tons of articles and videos on my website and YouTube channel. And the idea is like the, the magic of infomercial products is you're watching this show thinking to yourself, I don't need this thing. I don't even know what this thing is. And then all of a sudden you're like, you're dialing the 1-800 number because this thing you couldn't live without. And the formula they take you through is very simple. So they start out by highlighting like, Here's the problem. Then they talk about, well, here's the ideal solution to the problem. Then the third step is, here's why that ideal solution isn't really for you. And then they insert their product. So like imagine the infomercial for like sharp knives, like Miracle Blade or whatever it is, right? They're like, you want to create like delicious, healthy meals for your family, right? Well, you know, all you have to do is, you know, you need sharp knives to do that. What's the solution? Go to the mall, go to fancy stores and you buy sharp knives. But do you know that one knife can cost like $500, $1,000? No one has to pay that much. We believe 
that you should be able to feed your family and prep delicious, amazing food with affordable knives that never go dull, right? Like I'm taking you through like a little narrative, like you want to get in the best shape of your life, right? Well, the best way to do that is go to the gym and exercise for a few hours a day and eat well. The problem is gym memberships are expensive and who has time to go, right? I have a solution and you don't even know what I'm pitching, but through that little five second narrative, I have you leaning in and saying, well, this is really interesting. Tell me more. And I haven't even talked about what it is I do. So I love you talk about storytelling. I love infomercial, that infomercial formula for communicating what it is you do. If I'm a B2B seller and I'm meeting with a customer for the first time, how am I incorporating that into like my credibility building and like that initial conversation that I have with a customer? Because I certainly don't want to show up on the Zoom and then just like start vomiting an infomercial on my prospective buyer. Of course. Well, look, the idea behind the infomercial is I need to learn a little bit more about you so I can select the right story to kind of pull off the shelf. And one of the things I talk about when I talk about my infomercial formula, and this is going to sound worse than it is, is I say, like, sometimes if you want to sell someone a Band-Aid, you have to cut them first. And I say, I, I'm not suggesting you intentionally harm your customers by any stretch. But what I'm saying is, you know, our customers walk around with all sorts of like latent pains, pains that they kind of know are there, but they're not fully in touch with. And when you watch that infomercial, they're like, you say to yourself, yeah, I have that problem. For example, I'll give you like a great example. One of my clients is a cloud bookkeeping company and they'll call up entrepreneurs and, and folks and they'll say like, hey, you know, we, we have this you know bookkeeping solution. And they'll say, can I just ask you like, what are you doing today for bookkeeping? They'll say, there's only one of three answers we hear. They're doing nothing because they don't even know that this is something they should do. Number two, they're doing something on spreadsheets. Number three, they're using QuickBooks because that's like the big product in the space. Once I know that, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a story that leads from where you are today. So if you're doing nothing today, I'm going to tell you a story about, oh, yeah, I have lots of clients who do nothing. And what they tell me is A, B, and C. And here's the story. If you're coming from QuickBooks, I might say, hey, look, I, I have lots of clients that use QuickBooks. What they tell me is that the product is sometimes overkill and the service isn't as good as what they were hoping for. right? And so the idea is actually, I refer to this as assumptive priming, which is I want to showcase the fact, to your point, Nick, that I understand the pains that you're experiencing, typically in your industry, for your role, for the place you are today. But I don't want to just go and blast out the shotgun approach of like everything that I could possibly talk to you about. I want to learn a little bit about you. And then once I know that, then I'm going to take you down a certain path. And that's kind of where these two things marry up. Good discovery, but also showcasing to the customer that, no, no, no like I, I understand where you're coming from, which is really important, whether you're you know, new, old, you know, experienced or not, like you have to understand where the customer's coming from. I love it. Primer's priming. We'll <laughs> trademark that one. Not the first time I've heard that, but that's good. Yeah. Good deal. Oftentimes what you see with new reps is there are two extremes with starting your first discovery call. One, I pepper you with nothing but questions for 30 minutes. Two, I talk at you for 30 minutes and both are bad. It's always a little bit of a give and take. And so if you think of how to weave stories into your discovery process. When is the right time or what are some of the signals that I should start to listen for where I can say, okay, let me stop peppering them with questions now and empathize and potentially tell a story. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I actually, I, when, when I teach messaging and pitching, like, okay, how to describe what you do, the question becomes, okay, well, where, where do I use this? In the, is it just like when I'm cold calling and in the first 10 seconds, they say, no, like you can use it certainly when you're cold calling or you're cold emailing and someone says, oh, like 30 minutes to present, what the hell do you guys do? You can bring that out. 
But you can also do it, for example, when a customer shares something about their business. They might say, oh, yeah, well, we've tried deploying a solution like this before and it, it just didn't work. And I can say, oh, yeah, look, we work with customers all the time who, who love you know, deploying solutions to help make themselves really efficient, but they just hate how time consuming and laborious it can be. And so you, you see, I just, I use that to respond to a customer sentiment. A lot of my clients will actually start using messaging even at the end of the sales cycle, the end of the call, when the customer says, so how much does this cost? This all sounds kind of interesting to me. Like, what are we talking about here? And what they do is they use that as an opportunity to remind the customer of their value. It's almost like, you know, when you're watching an infomercial and you're like, oh, it slices and dices and you're like, oh, this is great. And, and then the host says, you're probably wondering how much they cost and where can I get them? And, they, and what do they do is they take a step back and they say, well, Armand, to do everything that this machine would do, it's going to cost you, you have to have a fryer and a slicer and a this and a that and an oven. And so the, what they're doing is they're reminding you of why you invested in this conversation in the first place. So there's really, you know, the way I teach it, there's so many opportunities to weave these stories in throughout the discussion. You don't, don't think about like storytelling is something you have to incorporate like right into your pitch at the beginning. You can use it to handle an objection when you're negotiating, to respond to a customer sentiment, to agree with them, handle an objection. I mean, it's it's all over the place. So David, part of the way that I'm going to formulate the story that I end up telling the customer is stuff that I learned from them about their challenges and what the heck's going on in their world. And the way that I get that information is by asking questions. And one of the things that you put in the prep talk was, the specific order in which you ask questions and why that's important. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. So the idea is when we ask questions, part of the objective of asking questions isn't just to get information back. We want to create a bit of an emotional reaction in the mind of the customer because it's that emotional reaction that's going to cause them to lean in, say, tell me more and, and ultimately buy. If I were to, for example, ask you about your current vendor, you know, I might say, well, how happy are you with your current vendor and, you know, that you're using now? And you might be like, well, there's things that we like, things we don't. What if I asked you, how many times did you have to call your vendor for support in the last year? And if you have like a, a negative reaction to that question, when I ask you the second question, well, how happy are you with the service you're getting from that vendor? The emotion from that first question is going to color the emotion to the second question. It's what's known as, this is it's in, in psychology, this is a substitution heuristic. Ask a simple question that creates an emotional reaction in the mind of the customer, followed up with the more general question that has been shown to have like an off the charts emotional correlation versus the other way, no correlation at all. So to make sure I understand this right, instead of me asking, how happy are you with your vendor? You say, it's all right. I mean, you cold called me, so it wasn't so bad that we had to rip it out, right? And then if I ask you afterwards, how many times do you ask your vendors for support? You're already on defense because you've already defended your relationship with your vendor versus if I lead with, hey, how many times do you ask your vendor for support first before I ask you how happy you are with your vendor? They're more likely to bring me in the right direction. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, they're likely, much more likely to have an emotional reaction. Now, again, it's a calculated question because if they say, actually, I haven't called my vendor at all in the last year, then they're going to have this like positive halo effect from the first question. So you need to, you need to be mindful of uh, the questions that you're asking and, and use calculated questions, which, which is actually something that's quite consistent across so much of sales, especially when it comes to, for example, objection handling. When the customer says, oh, it's too expensive. We love, hey, you know, Armand, we love your product, but it's just too expensive. You know, one of the ways that, you know, we can handle that, that objection is what I refer to as consider the alternative. 
So I challenge the customer to say, hey, look, you know what? Maybe this product isn't for you. And, and maybe, maybe you're right. Like maybe you don't need our product. Maybe you could get away with a slightly less expensive product. What, what might that look like for you? Right? Like I, I get you to kind of go down that road. Now, I would only use that tactic per se if I believed that you were actually better off <laughs> with my product, because otherwise I'm going to push you further into the camp of the other product, right? So we always have to be mindful of the emotion, emotional response that our questions create in the mind of our customers. What are some other examples or, or common, I guess, formulas you see people using to create that, that first level question before getting to the one where the person really spills their guts? Yeah, like the simplest thing is kind of like what I said is to kind of lean on a question that has like, uh, for example, like a clear yes or no answer, maybe a numerical response, like how many times did you have to call the vendor? The answers that give kind of a numerical response first are typically the ones that that are easy for people to come up with. If you, for example, if you want to formulate one of the tactics I talk about in the book and I talk about a ton on my channels is what I refer to as the one to 10 questions, which is you ask the customer on a scale of one to 10, 10 being this, one being this where would you say you are? And that's actually like a kind of a good safe way because now if the customer picks like a really positive number for them, you could ask a different secondary question, right? But if they pick a, a, a kind of a bad number that creates like a negative reaction, oh yeah, like I'm, we're probably a two out of 10 in terms of like this behavior that your, that your vendor, you know, your product helps us drive, then I can follow up with something that's a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of emotionally driven and, and, and qualitative. So if we go a step backwards here, I love what you're doing where we're getting into the actual problems. We're getting them to quantify the problems. But naturally, if I stepped into a discovery call and said, David, thanks for taking my call on a scale of one to 10, how much do you, (laughs) whatever it might be, you'd be like, dude, it came in a little bit too hot. And so what am I doing before that in a discovery call to get to that point? Oh yeah, I love this is an amazing discussion. And this is actually a video I've been I've, I have on my list to make. So thank you for for asking. So one of the, the problems that people have with questions in general is that to the customer it kind of feels like a polite interrogation. Like it was like it was on your list of stuff to ask me, and you're just kind of plowing through the list. And when I give you the answer, you say great, and then you move on to the next thing. And the way I kind of think about questions, the best questions, they almost need to feel and seem like gifts to the customer. Like I wasn't planning to ask this question, but you just said something that sparked something in my mind that took me off my regular talk track. And when I do that in a deliberate way, it makes you feel like a certain amount of like reciprocity. There's a certain you know indebtedness that you have to me because I was paying so close attention. Bonus points, by the way, and I listen to my clients' discovery calls all the time. Bonus points if you recap what like kind of like almost like what I did, what the person said. So Armand, I love what you said about A, B, and C. Do you mind if I ask? Like, so chambering up these questions like they are gifts to the customer, like you are just thinking about them on the fly because of something the customer said, that's a super simple tip for creating that really authentic engagement. The other challenge is when we ask those questions is that sometimes we have kind of what I refer to as like they're leading right? Like Armand, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you want your podcast and your business to be super successful. One, you don't give a crap. Like where, where would you say you are? No one's going to say that. It's like the equivalent of the worst discovery question I've ever been asked was at a trade show where someone came to me and said, hey, sir, do you like to save money when you shop? Right? It's a leading question and it makes customer skin crawl. So, you know, make sure that when you're asking these questions, it's not like you're not leading your customers into a logic trap whatever, they should be free to answer whatever answer they feel is appropriate. 
But exactly what you said, Armand, like you're cooking the question up for them and it needs to feel authentic, like a conversation, not the polite interrogation. David, I like the piece about someone's free to answer however they want. And something I sort of struggled with as a newer salesperson was if a customer answers a question or a series of questions that like has made it obvious that I'm not a very good fit for what their problem is, how do I politely like turn them away and say, hey, we're not really a good fit? I really struggled with it so much as a new salesperson that I ended up working deals that like I knew weren't going to work. Like I was too embarrassed to be like, I don't think we can help you. Do you have any advice for people who are struggling with that? Part of it after a certain point is you have to invoke that mindset of the healthy skeptic and just say, hey, you know what? Like, I'm not sure if this is a, a fit. I don't know if this problem is big enough. I'm just not sure. You know, typically the customers who are really good fit for us are the ones that A, B, and C. And you can still qualify the customer and let them come back to you because sometimes, sometimes, you know, it's it's the, the customer really does want your product or service, but they just don't know how to buy it. Like I'll give you an example in um, my third startup. So my third startup ended up being acquired by Salesforce. That's how I ended up working there. But my third startup, what did we do? We were a feedback coaching and recognition platform. And so oftentimes we would get RFPs and so on from like HR departments and they would be asking for like modern, you know, performance solutions. And we would look at these requirements and some of the requirements were like old school performance review, like once a year. And we would go back to the customer. We would say, well, hold on a second. Like we had this whole discovery call where you said, you didn't want this. Like you wanted what we had. You wanted the more progressive, you know, uh, ongoing coaching thing. And they said, no, 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 we do. We do. And they, we just don't know how to write the RFP essentially to ask for this. And so sometimes when we take a step back and we say, hey, look, based on these requirements, I don't know if we're a fit for you. And we requalify. Sometimes they come back. But sometimes, you know, we if we give them the option to say no, hey, look, I don't know if this is a fit. Most of our clients, they typically look like this. They act like this. This is kind of what they're looking for. I'm not seeing that here. And if that's not what you're looking for, like, that's okay too. Like we can part as friends. The last thing I want to do is continue the dialogue when when this isn't a fit. So there really is no, like, you know, you got to put yourself in the mindset of the healthy skeptic and ask yourself, like, what will happen if I continue through the funnel, continue through the dialogue and just take a step back and say, hey, look, you know what? Maybe this isn't a fit and make it the customer's decision to to withdraw from the from the process. Another time this oftentimes comes up is when you're in a head to head competitive battle. Right. And so are you using similar tactics when you come up on a competitor or how do you generally approach competitors overall? So it's, it's interesting. So there's a couple of dimensions to the competitive piece. There's like how we lay landmines and how we position like what it is we do really well. So the customer is really clear on what the difference is. But one of the things actually, I did a video a little while ago recently on my YouTube channel about how to talk about your competitors. My advice is you don't necessarily want to go like head to head, like, oh, here's what they do really well. Here's what we do really well. What I've seen is this. It's almost like the eye phrasing piece that we talked about earlier. You kind of want to stamp that out. Because who has credibility when it comes to talking about competitors? The market, your customers, you know, reviews on reputable websites. So you'd say, you know, hey, look, you know, I, I know you're probably looking at, at Salesforce, you're looking at Microsoft. You know, the, the feedback that we get from our clients who have tried Microsoft and have tried Salesforce, they tell us that they like Salesforce because of A, B, and C. They love a solution that's going to grow with them. They love that there's an ecosystem and a marketplace and all that kind of stuff. But look, you know what? 
Microsoft is a great solution too. And that's really a great solution if you're a you're a, like a huge Microsoft shop and you have everything kind of looped into Microsoft, like that can be a good solution. And, and that's what our clients tell us. So what we're doing is we're giving competitive information, but we're doing it in the voice of entities that have more credibility than us. So it doesn't become like an us versus them kind of a thing, right? Like, hey, look, if you're trying to figure out whether you should go with me or not, like, Go look at my website. Go take a look at the reviews my clients have left. Go on G2 Crowd. Go on Trust Radius. Like Google our company slash reviews and tell us what you find. That would be my best advice. That way I'm not putting the burden again of credibility onto me. Can you talk a little bit about the positioning and planting landmines, what that means and how people can do it? Yeah, well, it's actually kind of a combination of the things we've talked about so far. So, you know, when you're trying to like pick an enemy, you can start dropping enemies that are aligned with, I guess, aligned with your competitor and not so much you. So for example, let's say you have a, there's a competitive solution out there that is a great solution. It's like infinitely configurable and it it can be super duper customized to the customer's needs. You might say, hey, look, you know, if you're looking for a solution that is, is uber customizable and like you can have like for a million years, then that might be a, a good solution for you. The downside is our, our clients will tell you or they'll tell they've told us that it just takes a long time to get that thing up and running and it takes a fair amount of time to maintain and make sure it's you know continuing to operate. Our solution is for organizations who want 80% of that benefit, but realize that they just hate the setup and ongoing configuration process. And so you see what I'm doing here is I'm talking about third person, I'm also talking about enemies. Now the idea is if the enemy of the customer is bandwidth and setup timing, configuration, ongoing maintenance, then they're going to align with me. If they want something that's infinitely configurable, they're going to go with the other vendor. And the other challenge is it has to be at the right time. You know, one of the the challenges a lot of salespeople fall into, one of the challenges they have is that as soon as we get a little bit of resistance from the customer or they've ghosted on us, then we immediately start with like the breakup emails and like, oh, have I lost you? Do you you not want our solution? And they're just like, no, like it's been, it's been a week and you emailed me twice. Like I, I was busy, you know, it's not just selecting the right tone and the tactic, but doing it in the right context with the right timing. That's why and I, I couldn't agree more with Dan Pink. He talks about this in his book to sell as human, how sales is now, not that it wasn't before, but now sales is a thinking person's profession because there is so much nuance to how people respond to your tone, your questions, your approach, especially now where there's a million solutions on the market that all do the same thing to the, in the customer's view. I know we're all delicate snowflakes and we're all unique, right? But to our customers, we all sound the same. And so the way we break out of that requires us to be very thoughtful and mindful about how we approach the tactics we use. David, this has been freaking awesome. We're running out of time. And so I think we got to move to the final question. And the final question is this. So we've talked about a ton of really great things that salespeople can be incorporating into how they have conversations with customers. And now we got to talk about sort of the inverse of that, which is a bad habit. So my question for you is what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to stop doing because it's hurting them more than it's helping? Closing tactics, closing tactics. And this is more like, this is kind of a traditional thing that salespeople have been taught. Like, oh, hey, so Nick, is there any reason why you think you couldn't, you know, buy something today or like sign today or is like signed by the end of the month? And we tend to put like a lot of pressure on our customer. Now, look, there's a lot of issues that we have as far as like how we demo and showcase the value and all that kind of stuff. But those are all kind of like missteps. What I'm talking about here is like a negative behavior that turns customers off and makes them hate salespeople more than they 
already do is when we put that undue pressure, we try to make them move on our timeline. We try to corner them through these tactics. Is there anything that you that would prevent you from moving forward? You know, what do you think about getting the deal done this week? Whenever it is, we have to stop doing that. We have to give our customers. And by the way, salespeople do that inadvertently. You know, often, for example, when we do prospecting and I reach out to Nick and I say, oh, hey, Nick, it's David from Cerebral Selling. Hey, so listen, you know, I was thinking we work with leaders like you all the time to do A, B, and C. If you'd like to spend 15 minutes, how is Wednesday at 2 p.m.? Like, that's another example of how I'm trying to, like, you think to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm making it easy. All Nick has to say is like, yes, and then boom, calendar invite. But what I'm really doing is I'm pushing Nick away by having him think, who's this guy? Wow, is he shooting times to meet? Next week, no. I'm if I decide to meet, it's going to be on my terms. And this is a psychological principle known as reactance, which gets triggered in the mind of our customers. So I would say, just give your customers the freedom to make the lead them, be prescriptive, but give them the freedom to make their own decisions. And you'll see if you give them the option to say no, it's more likely they're going to say yes. David, anything you want to plug before we jump off here? Well, you know, look, so I give away tons of stuff for free. It's all ungated. So if you go to my website, cerebralsellingalloneword.com, I have a blog, I have a YouTube channel, Cerebral Selling by the same name and Instagram, if you're on Instagram. So I give away tons of ungated tips for free. And then of course, there's my book, which unfortunately I, I can't give away for free, but the book is called Sell the Way You Buy. And it is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you buy books. It's on Kindle and audiobook. If you feel like listening to six and a half hours of me reading my own book, you can, uh, you can check it out on Audible as well. David, thanks for coming on. Everybody stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Your top four takeaways from this episode with David Bremer include, number one, you got to cut people first before you show them the Band-Aid. Always sell them the before version of the infomercial first. Number two, when you hear customer sentiment or when you hear visceral pain, that is a great time to use a story in reply. Number three, Ask related questions first before you ask the big question. So for example, you might ask, hey, how many times have you had to ask your vendor for support? Before you ask the big question, which is how happy are you with your vendor today? You're more likely to get a response that leads you in the right direction if you ask the related question first. And then lastly, number four, when you're dealing with any competitors, it's really, really important not to just throw mud, not to get stuck in the feature battle, but more importantly, one, speak in the terms of what your customers see, but then two, say, hey, customers say that this competitor is really good for X and we're really good for Y. Where X Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with RocketReach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. 
Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them is something that the competitor or the customer rather doesn't care about as much. Alrighty, Nick, how can people help us out here? Armand, I'm shocked, amazed, and a little confused because every single day I go onto LinkedIn and I click on my red notifications and I see people saying, I love 30 minutes to President's Club. It's such a great show. And I go to reply to that person's comment on a post and I see, wow, they're a third degree connection. And I'm like, connect with the hosts. I like connecting with the audience. So if you're not connected with your wonderfully good-looking hosts, Armand and Nick, we will accept all of connection requests except when you try to sell us leads or Bitcoin. So Armand, I'm really excited because I get to send a lot of sales emails to my prospects. And there's another type of email I'm going to be given the opportunity to start sending soon. And that's a newsletter email to the wonderful listeners of 30 Minutes to President's Club. So if you'd like to get a special email from Nick and Armand occasionally, there's a link to sign up for our newsletter in today's show notes. Go sign up and get put in a cadence sequence from us. See you next week on the show. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes.